Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Chris Calvin, author of the novel All That Fall. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Great. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your novel All That Fall yet, how would you describe the novel? It's a thriller. It's the first in a series of the Emma Lawson thrillers. And so it features a young woman, Emma's, I think, 32, and it takes place in Sacramento, California, so the capital of California. And she's an ethics government investigator. There is such a thing. I don't know if they have that title, investigate corruption and so on. But the story really takes place away from her job. She's taking a day off to help her best friend, Kate, prepare to open a preschool. Kate is a preschool teacher, and she saved money to open her own a center in preschool. And so Emma goes to help her, but the day takes a shocking and tragic turn when the governor's granddaughter, who is three and is there for a tour, is kidnapped. And at the same time, Kate's son, who is 15, also can't be found. He's gone missing. And so Emma has to use the skills that she has as an investigator to try to find this three-year-old child and the 15-year-old teen. And at the same time, there's a, another thread going on, which, re which relates to hate crimes and bigotry and things that Emma and Kate are unaware relate to the kidnapping. But so it's a larger story since it's a thriller and it takes place uh, over 48 hours. It's a very fast pace. Do you remember the original impetus or idea that led you to write All That Fall? It's funny because I did have an idea. I don't outline, but I had an idea that related to a stolen cell phone, the, the teen's stolen cell phone that someone uh, was using who then ended up in prison and some things that followed that phone around. Once the story started to move forward, the cell phone no longer became important and I ultimately dropped what was the seed of the story. And so how does that work for you? You said that you don't outline. Do you find yourself, do you ever write yourself into a corner or how does that process work for you? I have only, I didn't consider myself a writer. When I listened to many of the folks on your podcast, I was listening to Mark Cameron's the other day. They talk about having been a writer since they were a kid. And so they have lots of experiences, probably trying things that didn't work. Or some of them have written many manuscripts that sit in a drawer. I'm relatively new to all. So this is my debut traditionally published book. I had one other book um, that I did not traditionally publish, but that came out. And so I write visually. I can see a story that's happening and I try to type that or dictate that while it's happening. And I haven't found myself in corners. More likely what happens is when I'm finished, I have to cut 25 or 30% of the book because I took little detours that maybe for a reader would slow it down. So it's more that I overwrite initially. I did, I think, 17 drafts of all that fall, even though it was done relatively quickly. I still once a friend of mine, Katrina McPherson, who's an author, said that your first draft is like a fuzzy daydream. I don't worry too much about the corners. If somebody couldn't physically in, true li in real life get out of where they are, either literally or figuratively, I don't worry about it. I just keep going. And I think that's what makes it enjoyable. You mentioned earlier that you didn't grow up knowing from an early age that you wanted to be a writer, but what was your writing journey that led you to writing novels and now all that fall? So when I was a kid, I did not feel safe in my home and I'm not unique in that, but I was scared a lot of the time. And so I didn't trust my own 
imagination. I didn't want to make things up because the world was too scary and there would probably be lots of monsters and things when I was little. But when I started going to the public library and I was able to read children's books, of course, quite often, everybody's safe at the end, even though there's terrible things happening if they're aimed for children. So I learned, I think, through reading and especially reading children's books, that stories could be thrilling and horrible and exciting and still it was safe. Nonetheless, I followed a very analytical and sort of academic path. I really was not uh, comfortable, I would say, for mental health reasons, delving into anything fictional that might come from me. So I went all the way through uh, college, never took any kind of writing classes. I didn't think I would be doing fiction at all. But my day job has been for a long time with the Academy of Pediatrics where I analyze legislation. I do child advocacy. So I have to do a lot of quick writing about proposed laws. California might consider banning ferrets. And people come out and say, wait, why? And I have to figure out how to very quickly write in a page the pros and cons of banning ferrets. So I learned to write succinctly about things that I didn't know a lot about really quickly and clearly. So I still had no interest in doing fiction. And then working in Sacramento, there are just so many things for me as a reader. I've been a voracious reader since those days in the public library. I I read a couple of fiction books a week. I have, again, always liked crime fiction and um, thrillers and things where there's a lot of conflict. And I I don't do well with uh, graphic violence, so I don't have that in my book, even though there are lots of great books that are written that way. But I can do with conflict and adventure, things sort of Harry Potter adult level. And so I would enjoy that so much. And I just started getting ideas in Sacramento because of all the reasons that people do bad things once you have money and power and government and everything involved. So I got an idea for a book and I just couldn't shake it. And I thought, I'll just write it for myself. I'll just get up early in the morning while my kid's still sleeping and just tell a story. Just I wasn't thinking about it to get past those fears, but I just thought, I I have to tell this story. It's nagging at me. This is that first book that I didn't do traditionally. And so I finished it and I was so amazed. I thought, wow. I read all the time. This is clever. This is great. I sent it to a developmental editor who told me it was terrible. So my impression was not accurate, but they did say, but you can write. Clearly you can write, but you just have people seeing things. No one is smelling or touching or hearing. It's not fiction. So I was just taking the nonfiction way I'd learned to write and trying to tell a story. So then I attended writers conferences for a year or two and learned how this is done. And then I tried again. And that first book won some modest Killer Nashville, best first novel, best female PI. So it won some things. And I was like, wow, okay, so I understand how this is done. And then a similar thing happened. I got that idea about the cell phone that I didn't end up using, but I got grabbed by something. And now that I write every day, write every morning, early in the morning, I cannot imagine not doing it. So even though I never envisioned it, and I was, in fact, I thought I was the opposite of that creative person. And so I always (laughs) encourage people, you don't think you're creative. Try it for yourself, because maybe what was holding me back maybe was had more to do with exposing what my ideas are and how people would respond. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50 percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? 
Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. And as I said, now I, I left that day job, which is terrifying. But I, so I'm writing full time, essentially, with a small amount of teaching and consulting. And it's it is I now view it as who I am. But it was I got there in a very different way from most people. That's great. There are crime novels and thriller novels that feature kind of child peril. And you mentioned earlier that all that fall concerns the disappearance or the kidnapping of one small child and then the disappearance of a 15-year-old. How do you handle that kind of sense of child peril in your own writing? I appreciate you asking that. I So for me, and I even have a warning on my website that says for sensitive readers contain spoilers, that these are, I write thrillers and mysteries. And so people will die. Even people that we love will die. Although again, I don't show limbs being hacked off and things that people do because someone shoots someone and they die. But that no child will uh, be hard. They'll be safe. We'll worry for them. And we won't like the period of time in this case that the child is kidnapped. But even with the child being kidnapped, the story is written such that there's, she isn't aware at three years old. She isn't terrified. She's at times scared and unhappy. But I couldn't write something where the experience of the reader was so overwhelmingly, again, just that it seemed real that the child might not survive or that someone would um, harm them in some heinous way. So I did it again because I it's a superhero without a superhero. It's Emma Lawson being the young woman who dedicated to finding this child. And she's actually initially looking for Luke, her best friend's teen, because that's who she knows. And so it's about the it's about the rescue. It's about the joy at the end. And as we go through it, I intend it to be perilous and exciting, which I, I hope is how people perceive it. But I also intend people to be able to go to sleep at night when they finish the chapter and say, when I wake up, I'm going to find how they find that child. Great. As you mentioned, All That Fall is traditionally published. What was that publishing process like or, or working with a literary agent, et cetera? What, how did that go? So I also didn't have a traditional path there. I didn't get an agent. I, again, just, so I didn't get an agent. But I, I believe in learning how to do things. And so that first developmental editor, name's Kristen Weber down in LA, she was great on that first book. On this book, I used a different developmental editor and asked them to assist me with it. And through that link, that person got it to a publisher without an agent and they luckily for me loved it. And I got a two book deal through them. But then I went and found an agent because I didn't know how to negotiate the deal. Very happy with the deal, but I didn't know how to do any of that. And also, I will say my agent, Abby Saul, is such an amazing team member for me. I, when my friends would tell me you need an agent, I thought, why? I do project management for a living. I know how to negotiate contracts. I don't need that person. Why would I give them part of this limited income for me? <laughs> I, the hardest days I have, whether it's discussion of a cover or what they need now for this or that or the other thing, my agent, because I am ex inexperienced, can tell me, oh, that's normal. Yes, do that. Or, oh, wait a minute, let's ask them why they're asking you for that. So I did uh, publisher, then agent, <laughs> but but they now it all works the traditional way. And it's not that different. I will say for people who indie publish and traditionally publish, I don't see this enormous gap. You have to promote no matter what. You have to be professional uh, no matter what. And it's just a different, it, it's not that different. I don't think. Gotcha. Well, given your experience thus far with your first novel and now all that fall, 
What writing advice would you offer for those who are listening who may be writing their own stories and novels? So the first thing is, and I know this is what most people will say, but pick the time of day when your brain is most suited for creativity. I literally can't write after about 10 in the morning. Even if I'm on a retreat, I have a free day. So some people are morning people. Some people are two in the morning or late night people. So find the time and then stick to it. I know this is something that Walter Mosley, I've heard him say, it doesn't matter if you're on vacation. It doesn't matter where you are. There are no exceptions to the getting your tools out, whatever they are. For me, sometimes that's just the phone. I'm dictating into the phone. If I'm not somewhere convenient to get in my writing, Tell a little bit more of your story because otherwise it's like starting over each time. The other thing is don't be afraid of doing a bad job. There's another phrase, which is don't get it right, get it written. I don't know who said that, but write anything. Just keep writing. Start with one scene. If you're stuck in the middle, stuck at the beginning, write something that goes in the middle. If you hang on to the joy, there has to be some joy or you wouldn't be doing this. Just work it through and then get an expert to help you. That's the way I... Are you working on another novel now? I am because I have a two-book contract for this, for Emma Lawson. So I'm working on Emma Lawson book two, which is very exciting. And in fact, they asked me yesterday, they said, we need to start thinking about the cover and the title. And I was like, whoa, you don't get the manuscript till August. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not done. <laughs> and especially the way I write, I could have like right now, this is first reveal of this. Who knows if it'll stay? It has the bullet train in it, California bullet train that isn't built. That's still be in it three months from now. I don't know. So yeah, I have, I'm working on that every morning. My intention, again, now that I've left my other job is I'd like to get to two books a year. Maybe that's a high bar, but I'm not young. I don't have a long time to write 40 books or something. So (laughs) I'd like to write as many as I can. That's great. What novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? So I read so many and I enjoy most of them. I like Anne Cleves, who writes the Shetland and Vera series. I had not read her Vera series. Those are TV shows, but she's also a mystery series writer. A friend of mine, Eileen Rendall, is writing this series called Women of a Certain Rage. And the first (laughs) book, I think actually that's the name of the first book, uh, hugely entertaining, funny. Eileen does humor much better than I do. So I enjoyed that a great deal. But I've been listening to The Way of Way of Kings, I think. Way of Kings, which is more of a fantasy other world that my youngest son turned me on to. As long, again, as long as it's not graphically violent, I'll read anything. That's great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel after the fall or all that fall? If you can see me grinning, because I just finished putting together an author website with a designer. So it's chriscalvin.com, but a couple of days ago, it had zero views. So anyone who wants to go to chriscalvin.com is brand new. So that's where they can find, they can order the books from Indie Bookstore, Amazon, but also they can find out a little bit about me and they can contact me if they want. If they have questions about what we talked about today, for example, again, I'm a reader first with only two books and hopefully more to come and probably having read, could I have read a thousand? I don't know. It feels like I've read really a lot. I I love to connect with people who read, so that would be great. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Chris Calvin, author of the new thriller novel, All That Fall. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Chris, thanks for doing this interview. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. 
In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.